Welcome to Take It From Her, the podcast exploring the faces of feminism today. Join us as we speak to women making waves in their fields, seeking to make gender equality a reality. Our guests identify the issues they believe we should all be thinking about. Lucy Delap is a historian of modern Britain. She has conducted work on the history of feminism, disability and religion. She studied at Cambridge University and taught at King's College London before returning to Cambridge in 2015 as a fellow of Murray Edwards College. She recently co-created Rising Tide with Dr Ben Griffin, an exhibition at the University Library celebrating 150 years of women at Cambridge. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, you've worked extensively on gender history, labour history and the history of feminisms. What is it about this field which interests you? Well, I love the fact that I'm endlessly surprised by the content of feminisms in the past uh, and today uh, as well. Whenever I um, talk to people about my work, they often want me to come up with some kind of good-for-all-time definition of what feminism is, just tell me what it is kind of thing. And I always refuse to do that because, in a sense for me, the most exciting thing is looking back and finding forms of feminism that are, you know, bear no resemblance to perhaps what I was expecting for that period or to what I might be identifying with as feminist today. So when I um, undertook my... PhD work, which was on Edwardian, early 20th century uh, British and American feminisms, um, I was pretty stunned to find that the women who identified as feminists, by and large, were not suffragists. So they didn't think that the vote was important. Some of them actively repudiated the vote, so they were anti-suffrage. They took the line that women shouldn't be asking for rights, women should be claiming rights at the point of a gun, if necessary. And exploring how they had come to that position was, you know, a very exciting journey for me. And I've continued to be really excited uh, about the history of feminism. And and it's led me into lots of places. So the work I've done on religion, on disability, on labour history and so on, a lot of that has come from feminist sources that make me want to go and learn more about women's working lives, for example. And what you said that they, they don't necessarily bear resemblance to feminisms today, but what do you think feminisms of the past can offer to contemporary movements? I think that when we look back, we often find very acute, critical analyses of um, women's predicament, of gender justice, of questions of equality that intersect with other kinds of struggles, like anti-colonial struggles, for example. Um, And there's such a rich tapestry of actions, of the kind of repertoire of how we might do feminism, but also of ideas, of dreams for the future, of, of aspirations for change, that would keep us thinking in fresh and original ways about what feminism is. And, you know, I'm all for this um, this attempt to diversify what we think uh, the feminist movement might look like, because I think attempts in the past to nail down what feminism is have been unsuccessful and have alienated large numbers of people who might otherwise have you know, taken, that, taken that movement more seriously and placed it at the heart of their struggle. So, for example, attempts to frame it around... Um, economic equality, for example, has sometimes been irritating to people who are involved in 
um, struggles for, for land rights who, you know, couldn't care less about equal pay, but want, uh, you know, uh, secure access to land rights for women, for example. So you researched the history of feminism. Would you then call yourself a feminist? I would identify as a feminist. I, I'm an academic feminist, so I am very interested in thinking about that as an activist agenda within the university itself. So I want to teach about feminism. I'm excited intellectually about it, but I also want to change the problems around gender injustice that we encounter on an everyday basis in Cambridge University. You recently co-created the University Library's Rising Tides exhibition, which spotlighted women at the university. Where did this idea come from? Ben Griffin and myself were hugely excited a few years ago to discover a cache of suffrage posters in the university library. They had not been catalogued. As far as we know, nobody had looked at them since they were received. And that led us to do some work on thinking about women's suffrage and what the university library held. So the exhibition, uh, The Rising Tide Women at Cambridge, really grew out of that suffrage moment. And we, um, we knew that it, it, it had been the centenary since uh, women's suffrage was awarded. And we also knew that coming up hard on the heels of that was the 150th anniversary of, of Girton being founded. So um, it, was the, it was the 150th really that, that prompted that uh, exhibition, which ended up telling a much bigger story. It wasn't just the story of how did we get to have women's colleges, but the ongoing story of how women have existed within the university both as students or as academic staff, but also uh, through um, jobs as porters and gardeners and cleaners and, you know, have had a very long-lasting presence in a variety of roles within the university and, and the colleges. And often, actually, the roles that aren't remembered in our history books necessarily. That's right. And, and yet I was quite surprised and heartened to find traces of those roles across the archive. So once you start looking for them, you realise that actually there have been large numbers of women, sometimes they've been treasured within faculties, departments, centres, colleges. Sometimes they've exercised quite a lot of power. If you think about, for example, the, uh, the women who've often been the, um, the, the, the clerical staff who basically run colleges and departments and sometimes are the kind of the, the fount of all knowledge within those settings because they have been there for many years and you know they're, they're, they're very, very central figures. So we wanted to celebrate those kinds of women as well as the Nobel Prize winners and the high-flying academics and the high-achieving students uh, that also feature in the exhibition. Okay, so as we've said, you included a, so, a range of individuals. There's so many women from so many different backgrounds on that exhibition. It's really fantastic. So how did you choose which to include? It was an impossible task, actually to try to get a balance of different kinds of roles, to try to be as inclusive as possible. We always knew that we weren't gonna be able to do justice to 150 plus years of women's uh, presence within the university. So we came up with the, um, the compromise of um, trying to invite the entire university to do that job with us and to help us select women. So as well as the uh, striking stories that we selected for the actual main body of the exhibition, we produced a, um, a digital resource, a digital database uh, of women nominated by different centres, departments, faculties and colleges 
and we, um, we threw that net out as widely as we could to get um, scores of women, either women who were important today, so sometimes it was the current head of department who might be a woman, or sometimes it was key historic figures in the development of you know, a subject, physiology, zoology, uh, uh, chemistry, whatever it was. So it's really great that we've been able to have that kind of wider range of figures and to pay tribute really to lots of those, those women's work. The ones who feature in the main exhibition are figures um, uh, like uh, Pippa Fawcett, who were hugely influential on the debates of the day. They're also women or threads of interest where we've got good material objects or visual sources to be able to tell that story. We could have told that story so many different ways, but a lot of the traces of women's presence within the university were textual. And there's only so much text that you can ask exhibition visitors to read. So we needed strong, important stories where we had good visual and material uh, artefacts to, to support them. In 2017, you spoke publicly about the imposter syndrome that female students at Oxbridge can and do feel and suggested that replacing portraits of the older white men who are on library walls may begin to tackle this issue. Rising Tide obviously represents the beginning of that process, but is that enough and is it just tokenistic? I wouldn't describe it as tokenistic. I would say it's a good start. We had uh, an aspiration that we might be able to link the Rising Tide and the reworking of the university library's portraits with a, a much wider project spanning different kinds of spaces within the colleges and the, and the, and the university. Some departments and colleges took up that that challenge and um, because they've got their own various anniversaries of, of, of women's arrival or key events, um, they have reworked their public spaces. And that's really exciting. I wonder what's going to happen next. I don't see how it'll be very easy to take all those portraits down and just restore the existing, um, often dead white men who, who ha had been there on the walls. So I think we're in a kind of interesting transition moment. I don't think it's going to solve all of our problems, just changing the visual environment, although, although coming from a college where there's a huge women's art collection, I have learned here what an important gesture it is to change the, 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 the visual environment in which we work. But I do think that we need to follow that up with joined up policies on things like the awarding gap, the fact that some subjects have significant problems in being able to award um, uh, uh, top marks to women students, to the uh, presence of cultures of sexual harassment uh, and um, uh, sometimes uh, the presence of sexual assaults uh, amongst the student body and in other places in the university. Th those seem to me to be really pressing issues where we haven't got all the answers, I'm pleased we're addressing them, but I think and greater urgency could be attached to those, those, those issues. So, on Take It From Her, we ask our guests what they think we should all be thinking about. So, what topic would you like to talk about today? Well, that was a lovely invitation to think broadly, and there are many things that uh, could be mentioned, but the one that really strikes me as a powerful change that we're seeing um, in the last 10-20 years is the rise of religious fundamentalism which is often associated with 
uh, diminished rights for women to public space, to reproductive rights, to the right to work, to literacy, to property rights and so on. That seems to me to be something that spans the world. It spans all faiths. There are uh, fundamentalist versions of, of every religion and we're seeing it across every region in the world. It's, I suspect, associated with the increased instability of a very economically unequal society. I think this is about a late stage of capitalism, if you like. I also think it's around the, the instabilities of, of climate change and the, um, the huge pressures that that is putting many societies on. Uh, people want easy answers, and I think religious fundamentalism has tried to provide some of those easy answers, but in its wake has often come a real diminution in, in women's rights and gender justice. Religious fundamentalism as a term was first used to describe a conservative type of Christianity. It is now a term used more widely, as you said, and often thrown around. How would you define religious fundamentalism? I would associate it with forms of religion that offer very um, uh, black and white injunctions that surround behaviour and belief. So these are often um, quite culturally and historically specific interpretations of what is normally a, a, a more open-ended, wider um, uh, faith tradition but which takes refuge in a particularly um, a closed off interpretation of what that religion might look like and which um, often offers not just uh, a kind of structure of belief but often a whole way of life associated with it. So that might be offering services for example and that comes particularly to the fore in areas where you've had um, the state prove unable to offer those services. So in offering a fairly um, closed uh, belief system and a structure of a social structure or a material structure for people to live their lives, I think you get a dangerous degree of um, dependency uh, and often uh, forms of controlling or manipulative behavior. Those would be the kind of, you know, the, 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 the trigger signs for me of saying this faith tradition has um, within it this, this fundamentalist aspect. So thinking about women then, so obsessing about women and their bodies, as you've said, appears to be a hallmark of fundamentalist ideology that transcends religious and geographical boundaries. So what is it about women that turns fundamentalists on? That's a very good question. I'll have to think a bit about that. Fundamentalists are preying on vulnerable populations and it is often the case that gender offers them a number of advantages as an entry point for thinking about control and manipulation. I think it's often the case that women are materially um, the most marginalised in situations where poverty, inequality, environmental degradation and a failed state make for a difficult environment. So women are often bearing the brunt of that. Therefore, they are often in need of the kinds of services, we're talking about religious education, for example, or handouts of food, or provision of, of community services or transport. They need those things. 
So that means that a lot of women are drawn into fundamentalist movements, um, despite the fact that in some ways uh, these movements are seeking to control their choices and control their bodies. I would also say that religious fundamentalists offer male adherents the satisfaction and pleasure of exerting control over women. So it's a, it's a perk, if you like, that um, men who may often feel very powerless in other contexts can, um, can gain by a, a fundamentalist um, uh, set of beliefs. And let's also remember that it's often sexual minorities who are the sub subject of the most harassment. So that covers both women and men as figures who, whose, um, uh, you know, whose choices are severely restricted by uh, religious fundamentalist um, worldviews. Your book, Men, Masculinities and Religious Change in Britain since 1890, was published in 2013. What's changed, if anything, in the past seven years? I would say that what has changed is the, um, the sense of the global prevalence of fundamentalism, which has seen a uh, resurgence across Latin America, in uh, Russia, uh, across certain states in Europe, um, Central America. But I would also say that what has changed has been a renewed sense of feminist optimism that it's possible to resist fundamentalist um, and anti-feminist uh, um, initiatives. So we've seen in the last um, few years significant victories where we look at women in Poland, for example, organizing against abortion, um, uh, threats to abortion rights with massive street protests. We've seen the creativity of the Irish um, uh, abortion rights referendum, which saw huge engagement, not only in Ireland, but with diasporic Irish communities. We've seen Carolyn women um, mounting what is thought to be the world's longest human chain, 620 kilometers of women to protest um, uh, uh, Hindu fundamentalist um, prohibitions on, on their rights to worship. We've seen extraordinary um, uh, creativity in Chile, in Mexico, in Turkey, where women have been chanting and dancing and um, uh, agitating against um, rape cultures in those societies. So I do think that we are in a moment of extraordinary mobilization on feminist issues. And that those mobilizations are global. People are learning all the time about, you know, what happens in Chile can be taken and deployed in Turkey. That doesn't mean that feminisms are gonna look the same everywhere because issues are local and often the, the, the forms of resistance are also locally developed. But it does feel really exciting that on questions of reproductive rights, on resisting these kinds of fundamentalist uh, interpretations of Christianity, of Islam, of Judaism, of, of um, Orthodox Christianity and, and so on, that we've got this um, outpouring of ways of, of, of resisting. So we talked about resistance and there was obviously a lot more resistance than there was before. 
At the same time though, we're seeing um, an incredible revision of women's reproductive rights, especially in the US um, recently. I'm thinking about neoconservative movements and changes to Alabama's abortion laws last year, which effectively overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that disallowed many state and federal restrictions on abortion uh, because it interfered with women's right to privacy. So what is it about this particular juncture in US politics that's given rise to this? I don't think what's happening in the US is particularly distinctive from, say, what's happening in Nicaragua or Poland. Uh, it's easy for us to be horrified slash fascinated by the um, depredations of a Trump-led government, of Mike Pence, of these figures who are um, who endanger women's rights, shall we put it like that. But um, it's important not to obsess about what's going on in the US and miss the larger picture, which is that these same kinds of trends are playing out across the world. Um, and, and, and the same kinds of forms of resistance are being seen at the grassroots in Alabama, as we're seeing in Poland. Well, that leads us on to, I suppose, our final question, which is how can we, either at home or abroad, as a feminist movement more widely, how can we challenge and resist fundamentalist attacks on women, their bodies and their autonomy? My answer to that would be, first, look local. So ask ourselves, how are we seeing this playing out in your own community, in your own you know, academic uh, situation or, or more generally? So, for example, it always seemed to me to be too easy for us to want to look at Alabama, say, uh, and, and ignore the fact that until um, this year, 2020, women in Northern Ireland haven't had abortion rights. So we need to look to our own communities before we start um, asking ourselves how we can support um, struggles uh, abroad. The reason for that is because it's all too easy to read feminist interventions as somehow allied to a painful form of colonial or Cold War interventionist um, actions, that history is, is there in our movement. It has been the case that a lot of interventions have been misplaced because they've come from a position where powerful and often, often racially insensitive or um, uh, racially violent um, uh, approaches have been taken which has given feminism a bad name in lots of contexts. So I think that we can look local, I think we can also seek to indirectly um, support local resistance that might be happening overseas by enriching the, the, the depth of civic life in um, across the board. So that might be by uh, trying to support the right to organise into trade unions, for example, or um, uh, supporting um, human rights provisions which allow for uh, a thriving and rich um, civil society. In countries like the Philippines, for example, it's because they have a strong journalist um, uh, sector, a journalism sector, or because they have um, judges who feel that they can intervene, that you have resistance to 
you know what what what's what's happening there under under a a very uh, populist um, government where women's rights are being threatened. So I don't think it's up to us to actually make those interventions, but to try to support the conditions that make them possible. That seems to me to be a, a useful uh, uh, intervention. Dr. Lucy Delap, thank you so so much for speaking to us and for speaking about the topic of your choice. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you.